Hey, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We're getting toward the end of this book. It's an amazing thing. We've seen how uh, God is showing us what it means to be in covenant relationship with him. And we're always called to live faithfully in that covenant with him. And this is ultimately, of course, what Jesus has accomplished for us, is a faithful, intimate relationship with God. We've seen that it starts off with a, with a preamble. You have to know who God is and what he's done for you. And then he gives us stipulations, how we're to live, the rules of living, as John prayed just a moment ago, to know where the hard ground is and where the soft ground is, to know where the path is that we're to be on. And it's a gift to us. We are the people, if we're in Christ, who have the mind of Christ, who are given light for our path, who know what is good and evil. We've been enlightened, and we're deeply grateful for that. There's nothing like the law of God uh, to bring clarity to life. And by the work of the Spirit in our hearts and faith in Jesus Christ, we're given that light. Therefore, now we can begin to walk according to the stipulations of the covenant. We saw there are specific stipulations. I'm sorry, general stipulations, and then there are specific stipulations. We get the Big Ten in general form, and then we get more detailed application of it through many chapters of Deuteronomy. Show us carefully how to live, carefully in every area of life, taking every word of God and applying it in all of life. That's how we live life. We live life very carefully, very thoughtfully. It is an intense experience to, to be in love with Christ. Because we want to bring everything under his lordship, every aspect, every word, every thought, every deed, our business life, our psychological life, our intellectual life, our recreational life, our economic life, our family life, everything. We bring it under his lordship. And that's what we learned in these sanctions. It's a holistic life lived according to the wisdom of God in his word. Then we've come to the, toward the end of Deuteronomy, we've seen that there are consequences whether we obey what he gives us or we disobey. It's what we call sanctions. The last time we saw that, that God even set up a very dramatic ceremony on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal for them to hear, respectively, the blessings and curses of the law. If you obey the law, you'll, you'll have these blessings in, in the land and in your livestock and in your own uh, families. If you disobey the Lord, you will experience his curses. And we saw that the curses were much longer than the blessings because actually uh, the Lord knows that ultimately his people are going to fail as a people and they're going to experience those curses. And so we have severe warnings to try to ward us off. And on the other hand, uh, we have the way back home when we fail. We've seen that even when God is announcing curses to his people and he disciplines his people before anybody else. If you're wondering about the poor Canaanites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and all these others that got wiped out, well, just look at Israel. They, they had to face destruction too every once in a while, but there was always a remnant. And he always showed that remnant how to get back home because he was gracious to them. It's not because they deserved it. He was just simply gracious. Now we come to, after those blessings and curses are given, Moses enters his final speech where he gives sort of his major pep talk from almost his deathbed. I mean, he, he basically is saying, I don't know how to come in and go out anymore. I, I'm not able to do that. So it looks as though he's probably bedridden. So probably from that kind of condition, he's given this last speech to his people. And he's 120 years old. He has the right to say a few things. Uh, and he says them. He wants to encourage them in the way in which they're going to live in the Holy Land. And uh, we would be very wise to listen to these words. It's a wonderful pep talk. And I, I've told you before I, that uh, my experience may be like some of yours. Before my dad died, he, he just gave me a couple of sentences. And they're, they're right here emblazoned in my head. And it was very good advice. I remember it. And you might prepare right now what you're going to say if you get a chance. You know, some of you may go like that in a heart attack or an automobile uh, accident. Uh, or some of you might get struck with lightning on the golf course. I don't know. Uh, but uh, others of us will just die of old age. And you might prepare that speech because it's very important. And let's look at the one he's going to give in Deuteronomy 29. These are the words of the covenant 
that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. So he's saying he already made the covenant at Horeb, Mount Sinai. But now he's, he's renewing that covenant and adding some words to it. And that's what he's done here. He's, before they cross over the Holy Land, they've been reestablishing the covenant with God. And Moses, verse 2, summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sion the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan came out against us to battle, but we defeated them. We took their land and gave it uh, and gave it for an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Let's stop right there. Now, in this first chapter, what Moses is doing is renewing the covenant. And basically, we're learning here that we must renew the covenant with the Lord. Renew your covenant with the Lord. If you're in Christ, you're in covenant with the Lord. You need to renew that covenant. And we saw last time how we can renew that covenant. Certainly even in the, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we're renewing the covenant. Every time you go to church and worship, you should be renewing your covenant with the Lord. The festival of the Lord's Day is the festival of the resurrection. And you're renewing your covenant with the Lord at that point. We'll see more about that in a moment. Well, let's look at the sequence here for just a minute as to how this is done. The first thing in renewing our covenant with the Lord is to remember why we have a covenant with the Lord. He says, you have seen all that the Lord did, but to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to hear, eyes to see or ears to hear. He's saying, this was all done before your face, but for some reason you're not getting it. The Lord is not broken through and giving you the miraculous gift to be able to see clearly what's going on. You're trying your own flesh to understand and interpret what you saw with the Red Sea divided and Mount Sinai shaking and the defeat of all these enemies. You're not, you've not understood it yet. Doesn't it remind you a lot of Jesus with the disciples? Don't you understand yet? Where's your faith? He says to them over and over again. It's like a refrain through the Gospels. And it's like a refrain through the wilderness. You don't get it yet. But it has been done for you. And we'll give you festivals to help you remember that it was done for you. And the first thing in renewing your covenant is to remember what the Lord has done for you. And that's the main reason you go to church. Is to remember together with your family and your brothers and sisters in the church what God has done for you. And here he says, just remember, I took care of the Egyptians for you. I led you through the Red Sea. I brought you to Mount Sinai. Your sandals did not wear off your feet. And if you've been in that wilderness with all of its heat and with the, the rugged uh, rock ground, uh, it's like walking on gravel for 100 miles. You, if you've been in that wilderness, you can hardly believe that the sandals didn't fall off their feet. That's one of the most amazing statements in the chapter is that the sandals did not fall off their feet after 40 years in the wilderness. And he says, and you also, uh, your clothes have not worn out on you. You always had clothes and you always had your sandals. Amazing thing. He took care of us in the wilderness. Now, I'd like to, uh, here in the outline it says, remember why. And then number one, it says, he provided for us in the wilderness. Make that number two, if you will. I realized last night I inadvertently skipped something. Verses 2 through 4 give us number 1. He delivered us from slavery. So first of all, if we're remembering why we're in covenant with the Lord, He is the one who delivered us from slavery. And secondly, He provided for us in the wilderness. So verses 2, and four, two through 4 
uh, talk about the uh, incredible uh, delivery from Egypt. Now, if you look for just a, a moment again at verse 4, this, this is an interesting verse. The Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. It's an incredible irony that these people would have been dealt with in such a generous manner by the Lord and they didn't get it. It's an incredible irony that the disciples were given such gifts by the Lord and didn't recognize what it was all about. Uh, those of you who are at second, you know, we talked about on uh, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, about Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Mary Magdalene, this woman who had all kinds of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. Think about the things she experienced before the resurrection. Uh, we're told in Luke chapter 8 she had seven demons. Jesus had cast out seven demons in her life. She began to follow him and to help finance his ministry. And she watched him uh, to perform many miracles, including raising the dead. She saw that. And she also heard his predictions on multiple occasions that he would not only be crucified, but be raised from the dead. And yet that's the last thing she expected. Think of all these experiences, personal experiences and observations she made, and she didn't yet put it together so that when she's at the tomb, she doesn't expect Jesus to be resurrected at all. She's expecting to go for a funeral service to pay respect to his remains. She's looking for his body that she can leave some flowers there and show her great respect for her late friend. Think of the evidences that she had after she got there that still didn't break through. She had an empty tomb with angels sitting there with the grave clothes still in the tomb, which tells you clearly thieves did not take his body. Thieves take new linen grave clothes. They don't leave them there. And the grave clothes, John makes the point that the grave clothes were in the same configuration that they would have been on his body. He says, here was the main cloth and here was the head cloth. In fact, he even uses a word that says the head cloth was kind of convex. It still had the shape of his head on it. So there they are, which means he was resurrected through the grave clothes. If you just stop and think about it for a minute, that's the only way you could have ended up with grave clothes still there in the configuration they were in. And, and without a body. And then notice the evidence she has. Jesus spoke to her. And she speaks back. They have a blooming conversation. And she still doesn't believe in the resurrection. Now that's, that's how thick-headed people can be. And think of all the evidences you have. Look at this creation that as hard as the most brilliant atheistic scientists in the world try, they cannot come up with a, an explanation for how this got here. They still can't answer why something instead of nothing. There's no explanation for that. They've got all these spontaneous explosive ideas. But nothing makes any sense at all. And the one thing they know for sure is that it couldn't happen the way the Bible gave it. It couldn't have happened by mere fiat, by word of God. That just is impossible. That's non-scientific. And I'm committed to the idea that whatever happened will be explained solely by scientific formula. That's exactly what Mary was thinking. I know dead people don't get up. So whatever explains the universe, it cannot violate the principle that dead people stay dead. When you start that way, evidence doesn't help you at all because you will find some way to explain it away. Look at the evidence for the resurrection. We have 500 witnesses. Paul appealed to them. You, you want to know about the resurrection? Just get on a ship, travel right back to Jerusalem. You'll find several hundred witnesses who saw him and talked with him. You see 12 men going all over the world with the same message and all of them to their death except for John who died of old age in exile on the Isle of Patmos. 
All the rest of them were either beheaded or flayed alive or crucified because they were preaching the resurrected Jesus Christ. Folks, that doesn't happen. They may have, they may have been wrong, but multiply the odds of that times 12. And I tell you what, a bodily resurrection by the power of God is a lot simpler and easier to believe than the 12 men who showed all their cowardice at the crucifixion. All of a sudden, all 12 of them are bold all by themselves in all parts of the world to preach the same message. When down deep inside, they all knew it was a lie. Can you imagine that? These cowards who had the truth of Jesus Christ and ran at his crucifixion. Now, they're all 12 in separate places at separate times going to stand to their death for what they knew was a lie? No, they knew it was the truth. And they'd experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what enabled them to deliver unto us the apostolic message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no plausible way to explain what happened 2,000 years ago short of a true bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've had this evidence all your life, so have I. But what have we done with it? So often we've ignored it, or we've tried to explain it away, or we try to act as though, well, you know, that's what religious people do. It's not really important. Uh, gentlemen, this is the most important thing in the history of the universe, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we proclaim. You start there. The cross of Christ and his resurrection for us. Remember what he did. And that's what moves us to keep the covenant, to renew it. <clears throat> so he delivered us from slavery. He provided for us in the wilderness. And thirdly, verse 7, uh, verse 7, he defeated our enemies. Now, we renew the covenant by remembering what he did for us. And this is the reason that we have festivals. This is the reason that, I mean, look at these things. He says, remember what I did for you in Egypt. What's the main festival? We have three main festivals. What's the first one? Passover. Why do we have Passover in the Old Testament? To remember what God did for you in Egypt. We have the Feast of Booths every year. And every male, 12 years of age or older, is required to go to Jerusalem and live in a tent for a week, live in a lean-to for a week. Why? To remember one thing. God provided you for you in the wilderness. I don't want you to ever forget it. I'm going to take a week out of every year so that you reenact the experience of going through the wilderness. The same with the Feast of Weeks at Mount Sinai. Let's remember the law of God given at Sinai every year which we now call Pentecost. So those are the festivals. And you know from your own Easter celebration last Sunday, you know the effect of festivals. You're actually reenacting it in a sense. You know, I had I, I, this uh, every year. Easter is such a special time because you're sitting there uh, celebrating with these people and with their Easter bonnets and all the rest and the orchestra and the choir singing, and you're realizing there's one reason that we're doing this. It's because he actually was raised from the dead and he's alive. And it's by entering into that festival that there's a way in which you almost reenact the, the, the experience itself. It, there's a sense in which a festival like that is almost a self-attesting sort of experience. That we're celebrating this because it actually happened. And there's a sense in which you can experience it through a true festival. Now, of course, every Sunday is meant to be a festival of the resurrection. You're, you're meant to enter into that experience again and to enjoy it again and to remember it, viscerally remember it, not just intellectually, but viscerally remember it. And that's what the festivals of Israel were for, and that's what they're for for us. Now, before we leave this, notice the fourth thing in verse 8, that he gave us the land. So we took their land. See, they've already taken some of the land on the east side of the Jordan. And so Moses is bringing them up to date. Here's what God has done for you lately. So it's not just what he did 2,000 years ago or what he did 3,500 years ago, but what has God done for me lately? Well, let's remember what he's done for us lately. And we recount his blessings to us. And people give testimonies of his blessing. Why? Let's recount what God has done and how he loves us. That's the beginning of renewing your relationship with him. If you're feeling a little, a little weary right now, if you're feeling a little tired, if you're feeling a little distant from the Lord, first thing, 
Remember what he has already done for you and bring it up to date and be honest about it. And so we remember why. We also remember what. Verse 9, he says, Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Remember why you're remembering. You're remembering what he's done for you so that you might live for him. And remember what that means. It means what he's told you in the book of the covenant. And it's been in great detail. It'd be hard to forget any part of your life coming under the light of his law. He's laid it out for us. That's what he wants us to do is to live for him. We've seen how this is the manual for how to love God. His law is that manual. So Paul says even that we have been given the grace of apostleship, he says, for the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Get that. The obedience of faith. So faith is believing the promises of God. Faith is believing the acts of God on our behalf like the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and the parousia, the, the glorious return of Christ. It's believing in his work for us. And that faith leads to obedience. And this is what Paul was about. He was going all over the world, preaching Christ, calling upon people to trust in him alone for their salvation, for their justification, that they may in putting their faith in Christ, now begin to look like Christ all around the world. And you can tell where Christ is being believed because lives are being changed. Individually, in families, in churches, and yea, even in nations. You can tell where the gospel has been proclaimed and believed because there is an obedience to the law of God. You never have genuine faith, really trusting in Christ, and no changed lives. That doesn't happen. Faith leads to obedience every time, 100%. Now, uh, does that mean that we no longer struggle or that we no longer sin? Of course not we sin. Does that mean that everybody who professes faith is a Christian? No, people profess to know him and don't really know him. Does it mean that just because people turn over a moral, uh, a new leaf that they're now believers in Jesus? No, pagans can turn over new leaves. But here's what it means. If you have put your trust in Christ, you are now walking in a new direction fundamentally. There's a new trajectory to your life. So that's what's being taught here. Remember what? Remember why and remember what it's all about. It's about walking with him and becoming like him. Then thirdly, verses 10 through 15, let's look at these. It's remember who? He says in verse 10, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people." And that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord your God, and with whoever is not here with us today. Wow. So who's he talking about? He's talking about all of you. First of all, leaders. Notice that he starts with the heads of your tribes, the tribal leaders, the sheikhs your elders, your officers, and then he says, all the men. Why? Well, because men were expected to be heads of their homes. They were expected to be leaders in their marriage. So let's call them all the men. Let's have a men's Bible study right here on this side of the Jordan. Let's get them all out here. Why? Because they're leaders. And whenever God speaks to his people, he starts with the leaders. If you want to look in the prophets, remember when we were studying the minor prophets? When God's got a problem with Israel, he starts with the priests and with the kings and with the false prophets. That's where he starts, with the preachers. So let's get all the leaders together and hold them accountable first. And just remember that it's a great privilege to be 
leading wherever you are. Some of you are in parachurch organizations. Some of you are leaders in your churches. Some of you are leading spiritually right there in your business where you are. Some of you, all of you probably are leading in your homes. It's a great privilege. But remember that when you lead, then you draw attention, not just from people around you, but from God himself. And he begins with you. If we're going to renew the covenant, let's get the leaders renewed. If the church is going to be revived, let's get the leaders revived. If we're going to renew our obedience to the Lord, let's start with the Sunday school teachers. Let's start with the husbands and the fathers in the homes. That's the most important place to start. We don't start at the bottom. We start at the top with the leaders. That's where the Lord starts. And then look secondly in verses 11 through 13. He says, okay, not just the leaders, but everybody. Down to the little children. Down to the wives. Down to the traveling person who's been adopted into your home as a worker. The migrant workers. Bring them in too. Everybody. It includes every single person. We don't leave anybody out. It's wonderful how both leadership-oriented the Bible is and how democratic it is at the same time. It does both things. So God calls first of all the elders and the leaders, then everybody come. So when you go to church, gentlemen, exercise your leadership and get them there. If you've got children in your home, who are taking a bed at night and coming to the board in the morning to get the breakfast, then they're to come to church with you. Bring them. You say you want to eat? You want to sleep in your bed? You're coming to church. And I know some, some dads who completely wimp out when it comes to drawing the boundaries where they need to be with their children and who don't want to be unpopular with their kids and because some parent down the street is not making their kid come and hear the word of God, well, I'm not going to make mine come. Oh, I think the child needs to make his own decision. Believe me, he's going to make his own decision. Don't worry about that. They'll do that all on their own. They don't need any training from you. But here's what they need training on. What are the bare essentials that a leader in any organization insists on? And when he insists on them, how does he lovingly discipline them and implement them in that unit? Whether it's a business or a government or a family. How does a leader do that? And you need to decide what are the non-negotiables for your family. And then lovingly administer them. And if you have a 14-year-old and you're moving the cheese on a 14-year-old, you got some explaining to do. So you're going to have to have your hat in your hand and you're going to have to confess and acknowledge that your leadership has not been up to par so far and that you would like to renew your covenant with the Lord as a leader in your home because you're the federal head of your home. Jesus Christ is the federal head of the covenant of the church. But you are the head of the home and you're saying this is the way we need to do things in the home. Now with your wife, of course, if she's not a believer, you don't insist on those kinds of things. You ask her permission to, to deal with your children as such. And you, when you have leadership with your children, this is what you do. And we just found in, in rearing our own five that there were just some non-negotiables. There was Sunday school. There was church. There, and that was morning and evening, by the way. And then there was youth group where they're taught. They didn't have to go to any of the other youth group things. They didn't have to go on mission trips. That was voluntary. They didn't have to go to the beach trip. That was voluntary. They didn't have to do special things that youth group would call for, but the weekly time when the youth meet together and study the Bible together and talk about youth issues, you got to go. So those four meetings every week. And I would say with five children, uh, you know, if you take 20 times five, that would be 100 children years. I probably had three complaints. One at the beginning, and you just smile at them. You say, are you kidding me? <laughs> are, you, are you fooling with me? You messing with me? Are you crazy? You think that we're not going to Sunday school? Are you nuts? And you just, they kind of look and go, maybe I am. Uh. <laughs> and you keep your sense of humor, and you're absolutely not negotiating. And you're happy about it. I told someone the other day 
uh, you know, in terms of personality, mine happens to be sanguine. That means uh, sanguine rather than melancholy. You're one or the other or something in between. I'm a sanguine. And then you can be either phlegmatic or a choleric. You know, phlegmatic is kind of laid back and everything's fine. Choleric is, you know, always fixing stuff. Well, I'm a sanguine choleric. And I explained to someone the other day, this is what that means. I'm a happy pain in the butt. Uh, so I don't get unhappy. I make everybody else unhappy. <laughs> but I'm happy. And I think there's something healthy about that with your children. They might be unhappy with a few things, but don't you get unhappy about it. And just keep your temper, keep your cool, keep your sense of humor, and keep your principles and stick to them. And if it means when a child is 18, if he finally puts his foot down, he finally figures out what's going on around here, and he puts his foot down and says, I don't want to do that. So well, you don't have to do that. You can start your own home anytime you want to. And I'd hate to see you go, son. It'd be terrible. Your mama will be mad at me for at least a week. <laughs> I, I really would hate that. But I certainly will respect you. And I will support you emotionally. <laughs> if you decide to go out and start on your own. You're a big boy. You can get a job. And if that's what you'd like to do, I, I'd suggest a college education. But if you choose another way, have at it. And if you change your mind, son, I'm right here. You know what my standards are, but you also know I love you dearly. And I'll be glad to take you back. And you let him go. That's what the father did with the prodigal son. Let him go. And you know what? Some sons need to be let go. And some sons need to go eat the pods that the pigs were eating before he comes back. And some of you were those sons. And some of you learn the hard way. And some of you don't learn very well the other way. And you had to learn the hard way. And you say, doggone it. I wish I'd learned the easy way. Well, we're just all built differently. And some of you have sons who need to learn the hard way. Let them learn however they need to learn. And you run your house however you need to run it. But I find fathers who are so insecure that they're not willing to be unpopular for even 10 minutes with a child, and they're willing to negotiate their standards of what a healthy home ought to be in order to be chum buddies with their sons. I tell you, I learned something about sons a long time ago. If you have to keep them alive, you can't rear them. Sons will do unbelievable, scary things. And if you have to protect them, uh, you're going to ruin them. So with sons, you have to let them go anyway. And the sooner you start, the better. Now, don't let a 14-year-old go out of your house. But, <laughs> but an 18-year-old, uh, just lovingly set the standards. Gentlemen, notice, everybody shows up. And everybody is under the authority of one of those men. That's the reason. Let's get the leaders first. Get all the men in here. Now let's have a little chat about what this church is supposed to be like. You men are all here. Now... Next Sunday, I want to see you and all your families, and we're all going to chat together. That's the way it works. Get the leaders together and then tell them everybody's important. And I can't, and neither can the guy sitting with you at the table. None of the guys sitting with you at the table can come in there and rear your children for you or your grandchildren. You need to be the ones who are doing it at home. Notice thirdly in verses 14 and 15 this amazing thing. He says, this is not only for those who are here, this is for people in the future who aren't even born yet. People who are not even here. Gentlemen, there's a sense in which when they met, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, when they met at Mount Sinai, you were there. At least you were included in the mind of God. I'm giving this law for the children of Israel, for the leaders and for their families, and for all those guys at Amen Bible Study who aren't here yet. He was doing it for you. At Mount Sinai, when he delivered them through the Red Sea, it was for you. When he brought them to the Holy Land, defeated Og and, and, uh, and the other kings, he did it for you. When he took the land, he did it for you. So it's for all those who aren't here yet. And you can see how when we enter into a festival, we're entering into something that was for us, just as well as for them. Now, 
Remember, D, how. How do we renew the covenant? Well, in verses 16 through 29, we're going to, we're just going to, I'm going to make these comments. We're not going to read the whole text. But basically he's saying, you've seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone of silver and gold. In other words, beware of idolatry. The how of renewing the covenant is really simple. It's just faithfully walking with him alone, not mixing up your gods. Let him be your only God. He doesn't need any assistant gods. Just one God, no rivals, no competitors, no idolatry. And notice in verses 16 through 18, he says, Beware uh, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away. So open idolatry. But then B, in verses 18b through 21, look at that. What about those who are hypocritically idolatrous? Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What is a bitter fruit, a, a bitter root? What is it? It's one who hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. He's saying, don't just pretend. The Lord will single you out. If you're pretending, don't think for a moment that just because you can pull the wool over your mother's eyes, that you can pull the wool over God's eyes. And if there's anybody who is secretly idolatrous, I'll single you out, he says. And so first of all, beware of idolatry. But then in verses 22 through 28, he says, believe the consequences. Because he says, if you do that, then people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord and they went and served other gods that this land is devastated and that they're in exile. He says, everybody's going to know. And you need to believe the consequences. When you renew the covenant, beware of idolatry, beware of the many idols around you, that the nations surrounding you and the different religions surrounding you have idols. Beware of all that. But also beware of hypocrisy in your own heart, of just pretending and image managing. But furthermore, believe the consequences. You know, the psalmist says that I envied the wicked and my feet almost slipped when I envied the wicked. They seem to be prosperous. And why is it the righteous always seem to be poor? The wicked seem to be prosperous. I, my feet almost slipped until he said, I entered the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. The judgment of God came to mind. And heaven itself came to mind. There are consequences. Keep that in your mind. God is not going to be your debtor. You are not going to outperform him. Whatever you're doing in this life is going to be infinitely rewarded. Just remember this. Believe the consequences. And then this wonderful verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Embrace the revelation. Here's how you do it. Beware of idolatry. Remember and believe the consequences of walking with him or disobeying him. And thirdly, embrace the entire book. Now, the secret things belong to him. There are many secret things, and many of the questions we have are secret things. How is it, we say, that God could foreordain whatsoever comes to pass, and then he could tell me to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling? How can that be? Well, I don't know. The secret things belong to God. However, gentlemen, why don't we start asking more questions about what we have, the things that are revealed belong to us and our children and for a reason that we may do all the words of the law. Why don't we ask some really intelligent questions that can be answered and go to the book and get the answer. And sometimes out of our cynicism, we just like asking questions that we know no wise man could ever answer. And he's a fool if he tries. And we love asking those questions. We love stumping people. We love making people think that their religion is foolish because they can't answer questions that only God can answer. And Moses is saying to them, you want to know how to renew the covenant? Take that covenant. 
Take the book of the covenant and learn it and realize it's yours that you may enjoy the Lord and that you may walk closely with him. So this is how we renew the covenant. Now, secondly, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 30. Restore your relationship with the Lord. I'm not going to go through this, but just to say this. He anticipates our disobedience. We saw this before. And look what he says in verses 1 and 2. You must return to the Lord. And you'll notice he says, all of you, you and your children. So you must return to the Lord. And, you know, when you get discouraged because of your own wickedness, your own stupidity, your own foolishness, your own rebellion, you get so down on yourself, so judgmental toward yourself, and so discouraged. What's the use that you just give up? Well, gentlemen, when you really screw up, when you've really surrendered all rights of a Christian reputation, now you're getting to the point where you might be able to understand the gospel. You never had any righteousness anyway, gentlemen. You never had any credit that would do to get you into heaven. So now that you're down at the bottom of the pit, bottom of the barrel, maybe now you can get it. Your righteousness is going to come from God. And he's going to undeservedly take you to be his own. So turn to him of all moments in your life now. Turn to him because you might understand that salvation is a gift. So you must return to the Lord, all of you, you and your children, he says. And notice that we turn to all of his commands with all of our being. So a turning to the Lord is not partial. It's not kind of like, Lord, I'm kind of sorry I got in this mess, and I'm going to try not to do this again. And I'm going to try to get this area of my life all cleaned up. No, no, no. That's not repentance. Or, Lord... I'm going to go apologize to old so-and-so for what I said to him, and I'm just not going to have anything to do with him anymore. (laughs) No, no, you didn't get it. Here's what it is. Lord, I was unkind to that person. And I acknowledge before you I've allowed his weaknesses to irritate the living daylights out of me. And I acknowledge that the reason that I'm disturbed is not because he's a sinner, but because I just don't like him. And I don't love him. And I confess that. And that's the greatest wickedness of this whole relationship. And I ask for you to change my heart so that no longer do I despise or am indifferent or, or hate the other person, but I actually love them. Lord, please grant me that, a full repentance. Because you know what, Lord? You've loved me, and I've acted toward you a lot more irritably than that person's acted toward me. And I have no right to treat people this way when I've been treated the way you treat me. See, that's full repentance. It's not just the deed. It's not just the one person. It's my wicked heart that I have diagnosed and confessed before the Lord and asked him to change me at the deepest level. There's real repentance. All of his commands in all of your being. Now, you'll notice in verses 3 through 10, when you get a chance to read it, that the Lord will restore you. And it's amazing how he will restore you. Verses 3 through 5a, no matter where you are, he'll gather you again even if you're in the uttermost parts of the sea, uttermost parts of heaven. This is where David gets it in Psalm 139. Though though I be in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there the Lord will be with me. So no matter what kind of mess you've gotten yourself into, no matter what part of the world he exiles you to, even if you end up in the bottom of the ocean like Jonah, That's a pretty bad place to be, isn't it? Fleeing from God, thinking he could disobey God and not go to Nineveh. He could go to Tarshish. He ends up in the bottom of the sea. Even there, the Lord sends a great fish and swallows up Jonah and spits him out on the seashore. Probably bleached from the acid of the fish's stomach. But nonetheless, he looked like an albino, but he's there. A little bit chastened, but he's there. Because there's no place you can get beyond the Lord's reach of his love. So no matter where you are, and then verses 5b through 9a, I hope you'll look at this later, he'll put you in better shape than you were before. How can this be? I was so disobedient. I ran away from the Lord. And then he gives you a better position and place in life than you ever had before. It makes no sense. It's called grace. 
And he'll have you in a better place spiritually and a better place materially, those verses teach. And you can look more at that. And why does he do it? Verses 9b and 10, because he loves you. He loves you. The Lord will again take delight in prospering you. It's an amazing thing. Now, lastly, let's look at verse, uh, the verses 11 through 20 in chapter 30. And I will have to leave chapter 31, I think, till next time. He says here, for this, this is uh, chapter 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have said before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your, for, your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Here's what he's saying. This is not rocket science. That's what he's saying. Realize the simplicity of the covenant. It is not too hard for you. Why does he say this? First of all, it is near you. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Don't say that, you know, only the academics, only the preachers, only my Sunday school teacher really understands this book. No, it's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's a lot simpler than you think. Uh, I know I'm not going to get this story exactly right. Some of you in the family or friends can correct me, but Rick Moore, who faced credible uh, colon cancer last year so that all of us thought Rick just might not make it. Uh, eventually, of course, comes through with flying colors and we're so grateful for his recovery this past year. But he said that one of his little granddaughters gave him great advice along the way. Uh, she said to her grandfather, God is good, that's enough. God is good, that's good enough. Wow. <laughs> you know, Sometimes old men just need to shut their mouths and listen to the grandchildren. As Robert Fulgham said, everything you really need to learn, you got it in kindergarten. And you know what's amazing to me? Some of you with highly complex problems in fields that I don't understand, you know, whether it's law or medicine or business, we'll talk about some situation that you may have that's very complex and why do you go to a pastor to even talk about it? The reason is because you know down deep inside somewhere in here a five-year-old who loves the Lord could lead us out of this. And that's about the knowledge a pastor has about the businesses you're in, about what a five-year-old's got. But we have five-year-old knowledge of Jesus. And it, as an outsider, we can just be the five-year-old and just take you by the hand and say, let's just walk through this like a, like a kid who loves Jesus. Let's just, let's just do that. And you know what? 90% of the time that solves your problem. It really does. It's getting down to the fundamentals. Just like in your home, we talked about a moment ago in child rearing. Just get to the fundamentals as fast as you can get there. And that's what he's saying here. This is not rocket science. And don't you people, you former slaves, don't tell me you don't have enough education. Don't tell me. I don't want to hear any of your complaints, he's saying to them. Don't tell me you had an inferior education. This is not rocket science. This is near you, he says. And then number two, he says it's clear. 
verses 15 through 18. See, I've said before you today, I've told you, I've made it clear. I know because I said it and I heard what I said. It's real simple. You got life over here. You got death over here. You got evil over here and you got good over here. Does anybody not understand this? Raise your hand. He's saying it's really clear. And how is it that grown men who have walked with the simple Jesus have mucked it up so much and made life so complicated that we get ourselves all tied up in knots and don't know how to get out of it? It's because we're not willing, says Moses, to go back to the simple truths. And not only that, it is dear. And he pleads with them. Therefore, please choose life that you and your children may live. You know, when you get to be, uh, have a few decades and you've noticed a few generations and you've noticed how things get passed down, you just want to plead with those 35-year-olds. Please, implement the simple Christian ideas. Please implement the love of Christ in your home because I can already tell you there are patterns being established with your children that are going to lead to death and not life. And Moses is an old man. He's just pleading with people. Come on now, guys. It really does make a difference. And I plead with you in every situation of life, choose life. And we're going to have to stop right there at the near, clear, and dear simplicity of the covenant. But gentlemen, what's interesting to me is that this man Moses, who is a friend of God, when he knows he's going to die, and he knows that his brothers are getting ready to go in to a big challenge, how he boils it down. Isn't it true that that near-death experiences and end-of-life experience helps us boil things down. When my dad, right before he left this life, he had gotten everything that was important to him in one cardboard box. (laughs) He said, Sandy, I've thrown all the stuff away. You don't have to worry about it. It's all right here in these files in this box. Now, that's amazing. I go home and I look at the boxes of stuff. My wife says, do you need all this stuff? Can't you throw something away? Oh, you might, might be something important in there. I got all these boxes and crates and stuff and books on my shelves. He had one box. God give me that simplicity. Boil it down. The wise person is the one who thinks like an old person in his youth. A wise person is a living person who's thinking about a person getting ready to die. That helps you boil it down. That's what Moses is doing for them. Gentlemen, if you want to know how to defeat the enemy, if you want to know how to take the land, if you want to know how to live life, take those fundamental ideas and especially the faithfulness and loyalty to God in everything that you do. And he will enable you to enjoy the promised land. Go for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of your word. And we confess there are many things we don't understand. There are many geographical and historical illusions that make us scratch our heads. There are mysteries that are beyond our capacity to understand. But Lord, the things that you've revealed to us are for us and for our children that we may walk faithfully with you in the covenant. And we pray today that we'll take those simple things and put them into practice and enjoy the life you mean for us to have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, gents.